All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying?, what is Chen selling? To learn more about these three newsletters and to take advantage of a special one-time trial subscription, you are invited to call my assistant, Claudio Bassi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or you can go to my website at miningstocks.com miningstocks.com to learn more about these two publications. I would also like to direct you to jtaylormedia.com. That's J-A-Y, my first name, taylormedia.com, where you can view interviews that I did with several very promising junior gold mining companies. And those companies that are posted there now are Adventure Gold, Abcourt Mines, Golden Valley Mines, and Metanor Resources. Metanor Resources. There will be a couple of more companies posted there, I expect, in the next week or so. But again, that's jtaylormedia.com uh, for some more investment ideas. To, uh, you can view the interviews that I did with the CEOs of those various companies that I think do have good potential going forward. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and for telling your friends about it. We are now the number one show by quite a distance on the Voice America Business Channel. Of course, I also want to thank uh, our corporate sponsors for making this show financially viable. And for the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Coral Gold, North Atlantic Resources, American Bonanza, Palangial Exploration, Millrock Resources, Revolution Resources, and Uranium Energy. Given the rising credit market contagion in Europe, I have asked a colleague, a former colleague of mine, dating back to the 1970s when I worked at Credit A to join me to provide his views on the European banking contagion. Christoph Needham uh, is, bank, is a bank equity analyst in Paris, and he will be joining me shortly in just a couple of minutes. Following Christoph's insights into the European problem, my main guest this week, Adrian Day, will join us. I will certainly ask him for his views on the European credit problems and how that may impact the commodity markets. Uh, that he is most focused on. In a recent book he wrote called Investing in Resources, How to Profit from the Outsized Potential and Avoid the Risks. 
Adrian uh, is a graduate of the London School of Economics, and he will provide. Uh, he has been on our show before, and I'm really looking forward to some of the ideas he has about the precious metals markets, the base metals markets, energy markets, and I think he'll probably have a thing or two to say about the agricultural uh, markets as well. Uh, in the second hour of today's show, I will be speaking to Blaine Wilson. He's the president and chief operating officer of Klondex Mines. This is a company that is moving forward towards gold production in Nevada. And Roger Wigan will be with me uh, to, for the closing uh, comments in today's show, as he is in most occasions. Uh, but now uh, I have Chen Lin with me uh, to let us know what's on his mind. Welcome, Chen. Thank you, Jay. Well, it's really good to have you again. Uh, Chan, I want to know, I want to ask you, uh, what are your thoughts on this market? You've had a very good year this year. Uh, you put out uh, a little notice to your to your subscribers yesterday voicing some concerns, uh, certainly about the European problems that are very much in the news. But you were also fearful about what might transpire in the U.S. down the road in terms of its debt problem. But what was a little surprising to me was you thought even China might have a problem going forward uh, with, with, uh, with a debt bubble of some sort. Well, given all of that, how are you positioning yourself right now uh, at the end of this year to protect your profits? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I put out a alert yesterday. Also, you know, that's based on some conversation I had with a lot of uh, you know my sources in China, and uh, you know there are some serious concerns of Chinese economy getting out of control. That's probably will play out in, I would say, in a few years because right now the confidence is extremely high, and um, you know it's probably going to go you know okay for the near term, but the mid term will. Have, Probably will run into some trouble, one way or the other. So I've been um, I, I actually uh, this today I sent out the alert. Actually, I've been telling subscribers I've been buying some physical uh, gold and silver. Uh, what what I found was actually very interestingly was that you can buy silver right now at discount to the spot price. Uh, oh. Part of part of the reason is. Um, you know the um, the sellers uh, they still have the old silver price. For example, silver was in uh, in the summer. Silver was like fifteen, sixteen, seventeen dollars, and today it's across twenty eight dollars. So silver price rose uh, dramatically, and it's, a lot of retailers was not able to adjust the new silver price. So so you know I've been you know I've been buying uh, you know a lot of silverware, silver coin, silver sterling, silver certified sterling, silver Franklin mint. Sterling silver, all these are well below a spot price. So, so that that's one of the uh, the idea I had, and uh, you know, and, and also in, in addition, you know, uh, we buy the gold and silver mining miners. So these are generally the ideas I have right now. So you know, to this, uh, uh, personally, I think you know, all these are relative. Okay, the European euros have trouble. Uh, the U.S. dollar is not, you know, the United States is not far behind. You know, the, the muni, muni bond market already crashed. Uh, they could be Fed could, I mean, probably will launch a QE3 to, to rescue the muni market. Right? They're going to buy, they buy, already bought all these uh, treasure anyway. They may well just buy muni bond. So that the the state can refinance. Otherwise, uh, each state, like a California, like a state you live in, New York and New Jersey, where I live in, could just you know couldn't get refinanced, just like European states. So I think United States is not too much better. 
than Europe, and so the the eventually all the paper currency would run into trouble. That's you know that that's you know so it's time probably you know diversify for me diversify a little bit to buy more. I already own a lot of uh, you know physical gold and silver. It's uh, probably prudent to divert more to the physical gold and silver. I want to ask you. Uh, I was trying to get a sense of what is the level of discount that you're that you're able to get on silver. I mean, if silver is selling at twenty seven or twenty eight dollars, what are you able to buy it for then uh, with these various uh, ingenious um, uh, process, uh, schemes that you've come up with? Well, you know, the um, normally I, I I get a lot of silver at below twenty dollar. Uh, so uh, sometimes you get a little bit over twenty dollars. So you're looking at twenty, thirty percent discount to spot price. It really depends. I think I think it's by chance. Uh, so for example, I went to Amazon. I mean, they still have selling at old uh, silver price, fifteen dollar, and they're selling at twenty dollar per ounce. They think it's a pretty good price. So I bought all of the silverware on Amazon at twenty dollar per ounce because they just they put it there, and I, I bought them. Uh, Chen, you're a bit more bullish, I think, on silver than you are on gold generally. Is that right? Oh, actually, I'm I'm bullish on both. Uh, it's not particular gold and silver. Uh, silver has been lagging gold for a pretty long time. So uh, right now, with all these uh, money, you know, going nowhere, they 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 rushing into silver could outperform gold for a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. And also, right now, uh, the situation in China is. Uh, uh, there's a lot of money was uh, piled in into those uh, agriculture commodities, but the government was very very upset. So they they gonna dump some you know storage into the spot market to cool down uh, the agriculture uh, market because the inflation was very high. So from the speculator point of view, they said you know only place the government won't you know interfere is the gold and silver. Mm-hmm. Right? So so I see a, a lot of uh, people they just uh, close up. Their agriculture trading account, you know, future trading, and see where the, where the money goes, and it could well come into gold and silver, especially for silver. Silver haven't reached the historical high yet. Well, gold did. Gold yeah. already broke <laughs> the historical high for many many times. Mm. So it, it's viewed as, uh, you know, people who come late say this is uh, maybe this one has more momentum. Yeah. Right. Well, Chen, I, I believe you're playing it a bit more cautiously now than you were earlier in the year. You've had a great year. You're uh, uh, buying more of the bullion now than, than the stocks, or, or more bullion than you did earlier in the year. Is that right? Yeah, usually, I mean, I, every year I put, you know, a, a small percentage of my profit into the physical gold and silver. That's your whole, you know, you really get the money, you earn the money. Yeah. Uh, in the paper money, you don't know when there will be, a, you, uh, you know, inflation, when they run into trouble. Any currency, it's a, it's a risk. That's why I t- keep telling trader, trader keeps saying, telling me, you know, talking to the trader, that the gold and silver too risky, too volatile. I said, you didn't realize the paper currency actually is more risky and more volatile. Yeah, that's right. So, well, that, that's, that's actually, you know, that's, that's, that's certainly, you and I know that, and, and the people that listen to this show know that, but of course, the disinformation that's out there uh, from the mainstream is to keep you into the paper markets, because that's what they can create out of thin air. They have a lot more difficulty creating gold and silver out of thin air. In fact, they can't. So that's, uh, that's the game, Chen. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, we're going to go to our next guest in just a minute. This is Chris Needham from, uh, from Paris, France. Uh, he's going to talk to us a little bit about the, uh, the credit crisis in uh, the Eurozone right now. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Chris Needham.
when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network try not to try too hard it's just a love you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, I am our, our main featured guest this week is Adrian Day, who will talk to us about commodities and precious metals, and I'm sure he's going to have some macroeconomic ideas as well. However, given the current uh, situation in Europe, the uh, credit contagion, as it may be, uh, described. I'm honored to have an old friend and colleague of mine from way back at uh, the days of Credit Lyonnais when I worked there as a credit analyst with me. I'm talking about Christoph Nichtem, uh who I worked with back in the 1970s. And uh, Christoph is currently an equity analyst uh, featuring really focused on the banking industry in Paris. Uh, he works for a company called Alpha Value, 
uh, it, and he produces fundamental bottoms-up independent equity research on the 500 pan-European stocks. And uh, his alpha value uh, is ranked as the world's number one stock picker on European financials by Bloomberg Markets. Uh, and its uh, analysts are systematically uh, ranked among the best in the uh, various sectors, including the telecom, energy, uh, and banking sectors, of course, which uh, Christoph heads up as the team leader, um, the team leader for the bank analyst at Alpha Value. It covers over 39 European banks across 13 European countries with a total market cap of $836 billion as of yesterday's close. Uh, Christoph has a very impressive uh, academic background as well, and I would invite you, I don't want to take too much time to go over his lengthy bio. I think it's best if you just go to the radio website and you can read uh, Christoph's bio there. So in any event, Christoph, I want to welcome you to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. It's really good to have you and to talk to an old friend. Welcome. Same thing here, Jay. Well, it's just terrific, and the fact that we can talk to you in Paris, France, one of the favorite uh, cities of almost everybody around the world. You are a most fortunate fellow to live in Paris, I think. Thank you. Uh, let, let's let's get let's get right down to business here. You know, there, this really is a. It seems to me to be a very very serious thing that's taking place uh, in uh, in Europe right now. The uh, the banking systems of the pig countries, Portugal, Ireland, and Greece, are considered the weakest countries. Uh, in the system at this point in time, and that, that's based on what I hear, you know, I'm, at least that's what I'm gathering from the news that we hear over here all the time. What is the amount of bailout money that is being talked about now? What's going to be needed to fix this problem, the Port at least as far as Portugal, Ireland, and Greece are concerned? Well, uh, as you may know, for Greece, uh, the amount is already on the table, and it's about 110 billion euros which uh, correspond to approximately 56% of the Greek GDP. Mm. Uh, for Ireland, uh, we know it's going to be 85 billion euros. Uh, that comes up to 48% uh, of the Irish GDP. So mm. if, if I make some kind of rule of thumb for Portugal, and if I use the average uh, compared to GDP of the Greek and Irish needs, then I come up with a figure of 52% of GDP. Basically, it's 80 billion euros additional. So wow. the total for the three pigs, if I may call them, is <laughs> going to come out at around 275 billion euros. Now, wow. that compares with a, a European uh, stabilization fund that you would call a bailout fund, uh, which, uh, as of today, uh, has been declared at a level of 750 billion euros, including the IMF facility. Basically, that represents 9% of the GDP of the 16 countries uh, that constitute the so-called Eurozone. Um, Eurozone. Mm-hmm. 9% of, of, of the total GDP of the Eurozone. Yeah, the 16 countries, which come out at 8.5 trillion euros. Okay, that's what those countries, those three countries need now. But do you think that bailouts, that level of bailout uh, money will stop the hemorrhaging? Is it going to fix the problem? Or is it this just a matter of kicking the can down the road for another day, and then you revisit this situation again? Well, the 
yes, I think that's sufficient, provided the markets were efficient and rational, and provided Europeans were speaking with one voice. Unfortunately, uh, we have experienced time after time with a huge cacophony between Brussels, Berlin, Paris, and the incriminated countries. Now, the strength, the strength sorry, of the U.S. in this uh, financial mess is that it can speak with uh, only one voice. If your president, Mr. Obama, were the president of Europe, and if Mrs. Merkel was his secretary of treasury, she would have been fired several times already. This is probably the cost that we have to bear here in Europe in terms of democracies that are trying to build a united continent. Now, as to the markets, uh, let me uh, remind you that financial markets have two engines, greed and fear, and we're basically always killed by the markets like in a war, by people we cannot even see and mm -hmm. who we won't ever know. I'm going to be very blunt about the markets. After 30 years of market observation, I no longer believe that they are efficient. Mm. Let me explain, if, I, if you give me some more time, how sure. we got here in this sovereign debt crisis, because that understanding with inside, of course, is key to form a judgment on this particular European banking crisis. Agreed, Christoph. Yes, yes, indeed. How did we get here? That's a great question. That's the so, most so here's the story. Of course, uh, you know, I'm trying to make uh, simple, very difficult things. Step one, and I'm sure you are going to enjoy that. You have hedge fund manager A, who dines with hedge fund manager B and C in a Big Apple restaurant. If you want to make it Smith and Volensky for people who like Smithy stories. And they decide that the euro is fair game. So what do they do? They buy CDS, credit default swap, on small European countries with known illiquid government bond markets. Mm -hmm. And they don't even own the bonds in question. Mm -hmm. It's basically called a naked CDS. A naked CDS, in essence, it's like buying far insurance on your neighbor's house. Mm -hmm. Guess what they do next? <laughs> because a CDS requires little money on the table, basically an insurance premium of, let's say, 2% of the bond value. If you put the equivalent of the entire bond value, i.e. 100% of face value, on CDS, you can buy 50 times more than if you had to buy the bond itself. That's the beauty of leverage of derivative products. Mm. As a result of the higher CDS purchase, the price of the, the CDS is going to move higher to, let's say, 4%. Based on the 2% investment, that's a 50% 50, 50 return. It's not too bad. Mm. No. So basically, they have an incentive to put the fire on their neighbor's house, which they do through the an unregulated and easily manipulated market. Not to forget that the data on the CDS price is disseminated by market source, which can sometimes be unreliable or even dubious. Mm -hmm. 
but nobody challenged the source on the CDS price. Step two. Because the banks and some institutional investors have to mark to market their bonds, when the bond market is illiquid, like for smaller European countries, they take the CDS market price as a proxy, which leads to book losses because the CDS went up from 2 to 4%. Mm. Then the management of those institutional investors say basically to the trading room, get rid of those greasy Greek bonds because mm. I don't want to show further market losses in my next quarterly report. Mm-hmm. And the result is that the prophecy is self-fulfilling and the price of the CDS further rise in unison with the bond price decrease in an illiquid market. Keep in mind that a rise of 2% in credit spread induce a 15% capital loss on a 10-year bond with a 4% coupon. Mm-hmm. So it's a win-win for the speculators, and it's lose-lose for the Eurozone, which is being taken to the cleaner one country after another. Mm. The edge fund goes laughing all the way to the bank, sort of speaking. Mm-hmm. Now is step three. The hedge fund can merrily short European bank stocks too because it is well known that European banks have a large inventory of European government bonds. So the European bank stock tanks, the interbank market gets scared, and U.S. banks no longer lend to European banks, which are structurally net borrowers. Now, what does that mean, to be a net borrower for a bank? Well, on average, every time a European bank collects 100 euros in customer deposits, they lend out 130 euros to companies Mm. so that they have a so-called loan-to-deposit ratio of 130%. Mm. The same ratio for U.S. banks, it's about 90%. For Asian banks, it's about 80%. So if you follow me, the European banks have a structural imbalance in loan deposits which they finance through the interbank market with U.S. and Asian banks, which have more deposits than loans and Mm -hmm. can lend their excess deposits to the Europeans. Now, when the U.S. banks get scared because they don't really understand the uh, Eurozone sovereign credit risk, they don't lend anymore to, let's say, Spanish banks. And the Spanish banks then must go get the cash from the ECB watering hole. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So that's uh, so that's the cause, the underlying cause of it, as you see it. Yeah. Uh, what's the answer? Well, the answer is probably not to be confused between uh, insolvency and illiquidity. Okay. Uh, Jay, as a former banker, you might remember uh, that it's better, let's say, to have Greek government bonds on a balance sheet than uh, U.S. subprime securitized mortgage loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just remind you that you're the one who taught me credit analysis 30 years ago. <laughs> so, well, I did a debt, good job. 
and and, and uh, you might not remember that, but uh, one day I was sent to uh, uh, renegotiate uh, during the summertime the Jamaican sovereign debt with Mr. Bill Rhodes at City Bank at uh-huh. the time. But anyway, so sovereign debt represents a liquidity risk, while private junk represents a real solvency risk. Mm-hmm. The worst that could happen with, let's say, Portuguese uh, public debt is a rescheduling of maturity. Uh, in other words, an extension of the repayment debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Mr. Barroso, who is the current head of the European Commission, said uh, yesterday, I think, about his home country, because he's Portuguese, he said, Portugal is not Vietnam, it's not Lebanon, nor Ukraine. While the CDS markets say exactly the contrary today, thanks to the skewed process I tried to describe before. Mm-hmm. While an insolvent subprime mortgage, let's say in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, is just that. So mm-hmm. let us keep in mind, and uh, I say that as a former banker uh, who is, uh, you know, who really know what a credit risk is, the Eurozone is not Argentina. It's not Jamaica, it's not Russia in 1998. So, in a few words, probably for uh, our listeners today, definition of insolvency versus illiquidity. One is insolvent when total liabilities are higher than total assets. Mm -hmm. So you end up with negative equity, which is the case right now of millions of American families who got caught up in the real estate bubble. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, one is illiquid when your total assets remains higher than what you owe to others, but you don't have the immediate cash to repay a debt that becomes due today. Mm-hmm. In the first case, insolvency, you have to obtain a debt forgiveness to get back on your feet. In the second case, illiquidity, you just need some more time to pay off your debts entirely. So to me, this so-called European sovereign debt crisis, crisis excuse me, is way overdone. It is a liquidity crisis. It's not a solvency crisis. If the U.S. dollar was not a uh, reserve currency, it would have long ago encompassed the same type of confidence crisis. Mm-hmm. Okay, it is a reserve currency, though, So, uh, but the euro is not, really, not to the extent the dollar is. No, it is not today. Mm-hmm. So, we're, so how is this going to work out, Christoph? Uh, you know, Spain, is Spain in trouble? Uh, could, could they also need some, some cash infusions? And if so, wouldn't that be a lot larger than, than what the three pigs were talking about so far? And I'm hearing, yeah. I'm hearing some possibilities of, of this spreading on to Belgium, even Italy. Are those possibilities in your mind? Sure. Let's talk about Spain first, and, and let, me, let me give you a quick and dirty figure, uh, which is going to be based upon the uh, refinancing needs of the uh, Spanish government for 2011 and 2012, and that represents basically 31% of uh, the Spanish GDP. So to make a round number, um, for Spain, it could become uh, 
about 300 billion uh, euros. Hmm. Let me back, back, backtrack uh, quickly and make some kind of analogy with the uh, you know, now famous uh, too big to fail uh, for banks. Uh, I would say about the three little pigs that you mentioned, that they are actually too small to fail. Uh, as regards Spain, uh, I would make a play on the word, and I would say Spain is too big to bail out. Mm-hmm. So what's going to happen if Spain needs the liquidity? Well, the ECB uh, will probably provide it, but let, let, let me be blunt again about the numbers. And I've, I've, I've run some numbers just to show sometimes the absurdity uh, of uh, numbers. Um, so if I take, the, again, the 16 countries uh, that constitute the Eurozone uh, back of uh, uh, around 2012, uh, the current estimates is that for the Eurozone, uh, the amount of debt uh, compared to uh, the Eurozone GDP would reach 88%. So I'll give you a round figure that would correspond to a public debt of the Eurozone of 7.5 trillion euros. Now, the average uh, maturity uh, for the Eurozone is about five years. And most of the so-called bailout plans that we've seen so far, I mean the public ones so for Greece and, and uh, Ireland, uh, covers basically two years of uh, maturity, two years of refinancing. So if I do the calculation uh, for the 16 uh, euro countries, eurozone countries, I come up with a potential need of 3 trillion euros or 35% of their GDP. Hmm. So tonight, but it's kind of absurd, it's four times the current bailout fund size of 750 billion euros. Mm -hmm. That's the very pessimistic approach. That's the one some people could use to push the panic button that speculators love us to push because they can thrive on it and make a pile of money out of it. Mm. As you do know, when we panic, it's usually the time when we do very stupid things. If mm. I do the exact same math for the U.S., mm -hmm. the bailout that would be needed for the U.S. is in the area of $4.5 trillion dollars. Well, that, that could be, Christoph, but you uh, just noted that the U.S. has the world's reserve currency. Isn't the big question for the U.S. how long will the rest of the world continue to lend to the United States? Because if we were the, reserve, the world's reserve currency on our own strength, but so far we've, we've needed to borrow from the rest of the world, do you have a sense as to how long that might go on? Well, that sense, I would tend to say, is the sense of history. And for historical reasons, you know even better than me, there was a deal which was signed in blood uh, between, let's say, the U.S. and the rest of the world through uh, two world wars, which is the U.S. saved the rest of the world. They, you did send your boys over there. You did finance the wars. And as a result, it's the uh, reserve currency. 
Mm-hmm. So it, it, it would probably take uh, a, a long time to change that, even so from a European point of view, because that's where I stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would make sense for me, as you say, no longer to have the uh, dollar currency as a supremacy currency. Uh, let us keep in mind that when you look at the EC nowadays, I'm not speaking about the 16 countries composing uh, the Eurozone, but I'm speaking about the 27 countries uh, com- uh, constituting the uh, European community. Mm-hmm. The economy of those 27 countries nowadays weighs about 12 trillion euros. Mm-hmm. which is more than the American economy, which weighs about $14 trillion. So converted at the current exchange rate in euros, it's about $10 trillion. It could make sense to have, besides the U.S. dollars, one or two other reserve currency, uh, mm-hmm. like the euros, of course, and, and, and you might not like that, the Chinese one. Sure. All right, uh, Christoph, we're just about, we really have gone over uh, the time I was expecting to spend with you. You have so much to say, and I have an idea. We could go on for another half an hour, probably. But I have to ask you this before we conclude our discussion. We're hearing reports that Germany and, and maybe to a lesser degree France, that people inside of Germany at least, are uh, you know not liking this notion of having to socialize uh, the losses of Europe. Uh, politically, how do you think this stands? How long will the stronger countries like, let's say, uh, Germany and France uh, be willing to ke- continue to uh, see their living standards decline in order to save the euro? And do you think the euro might be in danger sometime down the road of survival? Yeah, okay. Now, regarding France, uh, I do appreciate the fact that uh, you, you say that France is believed to be among the uh, strongest countries uh, at a time uh, like today when there are renewed market rumors of a rating downgrading from its AAA status. Um, It's true that the uh, French model with social safety nets uh, has been quite useful in alleviating alleviating, the, the shock of the financial crisis and helped in avoiding a social explosion. Uh, France ended up with a 2% decrease in uh, GDP in 2009, which is roughly half the 4% decline that we have encountered in the Eurozone. So the so-called safety nets played some kind of automatic stabilizer effect. But of course, I stop here laudating the French model because else I know that you Austrians are going Mm -hmm. to call me bird names. Now, regarding <laughs> Germany, uh, let me remind you, and that's, that's history, and history is essential if you want to understand the future, you have to know the past. Let mm-hmm. me remind you that West Germans already suffered in their living standards when they integrated the Aussies of the former East Germany in the 90s. By the way, through the so-called policy of the strong French franc currency, which was commanded at the time by Mr. Trichet, uh, which is a French guy who now heads the European Central Bank, the French did, uh, did bear more than their share of pain alongside Germans for the reunification process of Germany. 
So to try to answer your question, of course, I do not have a crystal ball. The optimistic view is that Germans have shown solidarity in the past, and they will do it again this time because the construction of Europe is a high objective of historical importance. The pessimistic view is that they could have become fed up with paying for others, but I do lean on the optimistic side here. Now, to answer your last question, which is, will the euro survive this crisis? Uh, I hope so. Uh, and I think we can survive this crisis if we can tame, as I call it, the beast. It's up to our politician to tame the beast, keeping in mind that this time the beast, sorry for the word, but is a foreign one. Uh, I'm not sure that many uh, market participants have noticed that two countries that had among the highest debt-to-GDP ratio, no, I'm not speaking about the U.S., the, the highest debt-to-GDP uh, ratio do not seem to be attacked by the markets right now. It's namely Japan and, to a lesser extent, Italy. Mm -hmm. And the main reason why those two countries uh, have not been uh, attacked in the market is because their government debt is basically owned by domestic investors. Mm -hmm. uh, in Italy, uh, the percentage is around uh, 90%. And it is not owned by foreigners that do not have a vested interest in the future of, let's say, Europe. So, mm -hmm. the good news for the Eurozone banks and insurers is that they own only about half of the entire Eurozone public debt. The bad news mm -hmm. is that they own only about half of the same public debt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess um, we'll, we'll just have to see how this plays out. Certainly, the, the markets are very, very uh, nervous right now. Uh, so, uh, I guess, Christoph, uh, maybe we want to touch base with you again and see where you think this is going to go. But uh, right now, if, as an American, uh, how should I play it? Should I be long dollars and short euros or, or the other way around? Well, as an American, I don't know what to answer. Uh, okay. I'm going, to, I'm going to, to, to answer as European. And, okay. and, uh, and uh, what's going on reminds me uh, of a different time in the U.S. when the so-called junk bond market was under pressure. Uh, for uh, the investor uh, who is courageous, uh, there are great times to make plenty of money. So if I was running a very large hedge fund today, I would load up with Eurozone sovereign debt, which I would hold until maturity. The yields that you currently have on some of that debt is preposterous, keeping in mind that it is sovereign debt, that in the worst case scenario, it's just going to be rescheduled, but it will be repaid eventually. Okay. All right, Christoph, I'm, I'm, fortunately, we're going to have to um, uh, conclude our conversation because I have run out of time right now. It's very good of you to stay up late in Paris uh, to talk to us. I, I appreciate your insights uh, into My these pleasure. markets, into this, into this big, uh, really a very, very 
a serious situation, I think, in in Europe. Uh, you seem to be somewhat more hopeful, and I think if I hear what you're saying, is don't push the panic button. Uh, this can be worked out. Is that is yep. that fair to say? Okay, yep. excellent. Well, I hope you're right because who who wants to see uh, the world go to hell in a handbasket? Not even us diehard gold bugs want to see that because if the world goes to hell, gold or no gold we're not better off. So thank you very much, Christoph. Uh, folks, we're going to take a real short break, and we're going to come right back with Adrian Day in just a moment. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by revolution resources corp is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol rv on the tsx exchange led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired champion hills gold project in north carolina revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt and with over five million dollars in the treasury revolution is effectively positioned to do so please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm very pleased to have with me uh, Adrian Day this week. Adrian had been with us in the past, a few weeks back. He's considered a pioneer in promoting the benefits of global investing in the United States, and he's an honors graduate of the London School of Economics. Adrian is widely recognized for his global investment commentaries and published research. Adrian publishes Adrian Day's Global Analyst from his office in Annapolis, Maryland, where he also operates a global mon- operates as a global money manager. He is the founder and president of the Adrian Day Asset Management. Uh, it's a global money management firm that has been serving private investors and small institutions successfully since 1991. Uh, Adrian's affiliations, among others, include the International Tax Planning Association in London, the International Association for Financial Planning, and the Offshore Institute. Adrian has authored three books, 
uh, on the subject of global investing, the most recent one being Investing in Resources, How to Profit from the Outsized Potential and Avoid the Risks. Welcome, Adrian, uh, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, how are you, Jay? Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to have you. I know that you listened in on Christoph uh, Nichtem's, uh, uh discussion about the uh, Eurozone issues. Uh, Nichtem, uh Christoph wasn't all that pessimistic, uh, I think, not nearly as pessimistic as a lot of the, a lot of the folks over here on this side of the pond. Um, he seems to think that you know there are a few inefficiencies in the market, the, the, nothing that ca- that can't be so, uh, probably solved with some good legislation or regulation or something. That's sort of the sense I get from Christoph. What are your thoughts? Well, I have to say, um, how can I put this politely? Um, I agree with a lot of his um, aphorisms. Certainly, there's mm-hmm. a difference between reality and perception in many markets most of the time, and prices to, uh, are not always efficient. In mm-hmm. fact, they're frequently not efficient. That's how we make money. Yeah. Um, I certainly think he made an excellent point about the difference between in- insolvency and illiquidity. Mm-hmm. And I think, Jay, we know all about the liquidity in uh, the gold stocks, even if they're not insolvent. Boy, uh, do we ever. Time. But having said that, I mean, I have to say I, I disagree um, fundamentally with both um, his explanation of the causes and his um, uh, prognosis. Um, y- you know, I mean, whether or not we have hedge funds, uh, whether or not we have foreigners investing in bonds, or whether we have CDSs, or whatever we do or don't have. The plain fact is that uh, these countries have too much debt, mm-hmm. and they are somewhere between illiquid and insolvent. Um, and Anglo-Irish, for example, Anglo-Irish Bank, was an accident waiting to happen, even if there, no hedge fund had ever taken a position. Um, and so I think, in a way, talking about hedge funds is a bit like blaming a messenger. Now, of course, that can be the spark. That can be what provokes it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you have a house built on sand, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be a wind at some point that blows it down. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's sort of the way I, I, I look at it. And I think, you know, certainly, certainly the current uh, bailout is sufficient for the current issue. But... Uh, in my view, this, this, is, this is by no means the end of the European debt situation. And when the ECB President Trichet talks about um, markets underestimating the determination of the uh, European bank, what he's basically saying is that this is an open-ended, uh, an open-ended commitment on his part, and markets don't particularly like that, that kind of, of thing. So... Um, Sorry <laughs> to disagree. Right. And then lastly, let me say, when, when um, and, and I respect him, but, you know, I think we get used to low interest rates. When mm-hmm. I hear someone talk about Spanish government loading up on Spanish government and other sovereign debt, you know, I just punched into Bloomberg's Spanish government, uh, you know, sovereign, Spanish government mm-hmm. debt. For example, we've got a uh, maturity of April of fifteen with a coupon of 3% selling at 94 mm. I, I don't call that a bargain. I, I, you know, I, even in the best of times, I don't think I would be particularly thrilled at 3.5% on, mm. on Spanish debt. Mm. Um, so... Enough on that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, no, no. I can. I. I can hear. I hear what you're saying. And then <laughs> certainly, uh, yeah. You and I probably come uh, from a from an Austrian 
background. Christoph does not. So, uh, but uh, you know, he's over there. He's dealing with this stuff. Sure. And I just uh, it was good to hear. hear and his may I just on say it. one other thing? I mean, I, I have no doubt that you know there could be a a, a rally in some of the debt. Mm-hmm. You know, if if the gov- if the market may have overreacted in the short term, no question about that. The short term issue may have been taken care of, and, and the government debt may be a good speculation for the immediate term. Um, I think another big difference, if I may, is, you know, I'm English, um, and perhaps English people have a different view on the European community enterprise than do Belgians and French and, and, and Germans. Um, you know, they have a vested interest in making this dancing work, and in my view, it is essentially unworkable. Mm-hmm. Well, you certainly have issues that you don't have in the states, uh, and, and Christoph talked on that too. Sure, the, the ability to uh, to speak as one voice—you uh, don't have that uh, in Europe. You've got different cultures, different languages, so uh, it is a complex situation there, I think. And uh, I mean, actually, uh, I wanted to ask you about this. Last evening, I was having dinner in New York with some Austrian-thinking people, and this one young hedge fund manager was suggesting. Uh, that he was actually bullish on the euro now because he said, unlike the U.S., the Europeans can't, uh, the eurozone can't print money in unlimited amounts like the U.S. can. You know, that's that's a good point. That is both the salvation and will be the downfall of the U.S. The fact that uh, you know the U.S. is a reserve currency and up until now uh, has been able to print as much money as it wanted, knowing that somebody will buy it at a reasonable price. So sure, and I mean, I, I, you know, the the Europeans generally have, in my view, a much, and I'm talking about the continental Europeans. As as an Englishman, I I never think of England as being part of Europe. Um, I think the Europeans have a, a much better uh, sense of, um, you know, the value of money, and um, Germans in particular do, but but most of the northern uh, Europeans do. Um, than than do uh, than do um, uh, the U.S. people generally. So no, I, I I agree with that completely. I'm not sure that I would want to buy the euro at this point. Frankly, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit of an agnostic on currencies in the near term, but I would I would be more inclined to think that the dollar is going to have a continue this rally for the time being. But I'm I'm a bit of an agnostic and. If I may, Jay, that's, you know, we'll come back to that several times in the interview, perhaps. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, I, I think is important for investors to, under, to, to appreciate is, um, you know, you don't always have to have a view on something. You don't always have to have a position. Mm-hmm. You want to, um, I don't want to make this sound too speculative, but you want to place your money and make your bets when... You know, everything's lined up in your favor as best as you mm-hmm. can see, at least when the odds are strongly in your favor. You you don't have to have a position a position all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you talked about the world's reserve currency and the dollar. Um, how much further do we have to run on that? I mean, that's the big question in my mind. How long? Is the, because, because we, uh, you know, the dollar's been held up not by our own strength, uh, and, and in fact, it seems very perverse that the dollar gets stronger when the world runs into trouble because there seems to be sort of a short covering of the, of the massive dollar debt denomination. And, uh, you know, it's not like the dollar is getting stronger because the U.S. E- economy is strong. It's, it's almost perverse. It goes up when, when we have another credit crisis, a global credit crisis. I mean, like what's happening in euro now has strengthened the dollar, right? What's happened uh, 
the problems there. So yes, I guess what, how, how much longer, uh, Adrian, do you have, I know you don't have a crystal ball like Christoph doesn't, either none of us do, but how much longer can this U.S. dollar remain the world's reserve currency? Christoph seems to think it's going to be for quite a while. Well, I, I think often, I mean, clearly, I think, I think it's been said many times, and, and, and I think a lot of people recognize this. If there were a good alternative to the dollar as a world's reserve currency, um, I don't think the U.S. would, I think the U.S. would have already lost its position by now. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. the U.S. is still the world's reserve currency because basically there is no alternative. I mean, nobody wants a euro. I mean, do you want the euro, which is an artificial const construct? Do you want that as a significant part of your, you know, fundamental long-term reserves? Probably not. The yen had too many issues there. Then what do you go to? The Swiss franc, um, mm. you know, the Icelandic kroner. I mean, you're getting to pretty small currencies pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's, that's the basic issue here. And, and you know, um, my friend Rick Rule has an excellent saying that applies to many, many, many things. Just because something's inevitable doesn't mean it's imminent. So mm -hmm. I think this could go on a lot, lot longer than perhaps many of us expect. Now, having said that, um, I also suspect, and this is just a gut feeling, but because of the fundamentals uh, in the U.S. financial system, and, the, and I'm talking about the long-term um, fundamentals and the excess debt that you see in the U.S. at all levels, um, at all level, well, primarily at the consumer and at the government level, uh, federal and state, I, I think when it starts to unravel, it could also happen a lot faster than we expect. Mm. So it might take longer before it occurs, but could unravel faster. It's the way but once it starts, it could it could happen very rapidly as the confidence is lost in the whole, like your house on the on the beach on the sand, I suppose. Um, yeah, well, you're, you mentioned a good point. That confidence. I mean, when you look at the U.S. dollar right now, it truly is being held up by confidence. I mean, all fiat currencies are basically confidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's nothing but a promise of the government to create more paper to pay you back. Yes. Um, and so once confidence is lost, there are an awful lot of foreign investors. And Christoph, of course, mentioned the foreign investors in European debt. There's an awful lot of foreign investors who hold substantial amounts of U.S. government debt. And it's in their interest to keep the dollar decline at an orderly manner, because otherwise it'll, it'll hurt more, you know, it'll hurt, hurt their own uh, holdings. Mm -hmm. But one can easily foresee at some point in the future someone saying, gee whiz, you know, we better get out before everybody else does. Yeah, you would think so. Uh, and to the extent that uh, quantitative easing is required now to keep interest rates low and to pump money into the system, um, you know, who knows where the real interest rate would be, which raises another interesting question I'd like to pose to you because it was a question that everybody around the dinner table was asked to answer last evening in this Austrian school uh, gathering. And that was when uh, the, each of us were asked to, to estimate or to give our ideas about when the 30-year bond would, uh, would hit double-digit yields again. Good question. Excellent question. Again, um, because something's inevitable doesn't mean it's imminent. And I do think a lot of, uh, a lot of people grossly overestimated the rapidity with which, with which interest rates would rise in the U.S., Mm -hmm. I think interest rates can stay low for a long time, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, 
First of all, there is no... First of all, the U.S. economy at the moment is simply not in a situation where it can afford rates to move up significantly. Um, uh, particularly, not just at the uh, uh, household level with credit cards and so on, and, but mortgages are much more important. Um, you know, if you start seeing interest rates move up significantly, a lot of people still have floating rate rate debt on their houses. I think you would see more and more defaults, number one. But more importantly than that is at the government level. You know, 9% of the budget right now, 9% of the federal government budget is interest rate, uh, is interest payments on debt. Hmm. That's with interest rates at these ridiculously low levels. And, of course, the U.S. has been doing much more refinancing recently at the short end than at the long end, Mm -hmm. which is also a little bit perverse, except that you and I probably suspect that they suspect that they couldn't sell all the debt they want to sell at the long end. Mm -hmm. There's too much of it, so they finance at the short end where they can sell it as a parking place for people. Now, can you imagine what would happen if interest rates moved up? Forget double digits. If they just started to move up, what would happen to those those debt repayments? It's hard to imagine. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, Adrian? Because I, I know uh, I had a reporter from a Montreal newspaper call me earlier today and ask me uh, whether I didn't think it was too late for gold uh, with the gold rally. And we're going to talk about precious metals and gold in just a minute. But uh, you know, I, I told him I don't, I don't, I don't think it is because of the policies that we have. I said what could really kill the gold market would be if we had another Paul Volcker rise from somewhere. And I mean, I remember the first mortgage that I had was a seventeen and a half percent mortgage. I mean, um, so 10%, the question posed last night was how soon do you think we're going to see a 10% uh, yield on the 30-year bond? And and there was, you know, guesses that went out to 2026, I think, at the long end, and some thought within two or three years it could happen. Uh, I, I suppose those that are betting on hyperinflation. Uh, well, let's let's uh, let, let's jump to this issue of gold. I mean, uh, where gold, the gold markets uh, have been in a bull market. You can say the nominal price of gold, at least, has risen since the 2002 or whatever. We've had a good run in the nominal price of gold. However, when I look at the real price of gold, when an ounce of gold will buy, it's only after the Lehman Brothers, uh, maybe slightly before that, during Bear Stearns, when the gold price started to rise relative to a lot of other commodities. But what's your what's your sense on gold right now? How much further do we have to run on gold? Oh, I think we have a lot further to go, frankly. And I'm not talking about corrections in the near term or medium term or anything like that. Uh, and, and we should never remember, as in, we should never forget as investors that, you know, at, uh, in 1975, gold dropped nearly 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people thought the bull market was over, and of course that was just the start of the, of mm-hmm. the second leg. So we should mm-hmm. never forget that commodities are inherently cyclical. Gold is very cyclical inherently, and uh, a, a, a significant correction is not to be is not to be discarded or discounted. But having said that, I think we've got a lot of further to go, and you just put your finger on the on the on the pulse here, um, Jay. Mm-hmm. Um, until until the U.S. government gets its house in order, until we stop spending more than we're earning, until we stop printing so many dollars, um, until we bring in another Volcker who raises interest rates to ten and twenty percent. Um, until we stop all these unfunded liabilities stretching years and decades into the future, 
uh, you know, the question is really quite simple. Do you prefer to hold... If, if, you, if you were a margin that came down today and you were offered either U.S. dollars or gold and then you were going to go away for another five years, which would you rather have? It strikes me that that's a no-brainer. There is no... There is no you don't have to debate that answer in your head very much. You'd rather have gold, of course. Mm-hmm. And I think more and more people are coming to that conclusion. And so gold yeah, I... is becoming, um, you know, it was the World Bank President Zolik, who, Robert Zolik, who said that gold was a de facto alternative currency, a money mm-hmm. right now. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what's happening. People are holding mm-hmm. gold as an alternative to holding fiat currencies. Mm-hmm. It gets to the issue you spoke of just a moment ago. Where do you go? You very quickly get into some of these tiny little currencies like the Swiss franc or the Swedish corona or whatever you named. Uh, you, there, there really isn't much of any place to go. So uh, it seems as though that definitely is the reason, a reason, a major reason why the gold markets are, are rising the gold price is rising. I want to ask you, uh, getting to your book, because I think it's an excellent book, and I would uh, suggest that people buy it. I, I'm sure it's available in the regular bookstores, but it's investing in resources, how to profit from the outsized potential and avoid the risks. Risks, Adrian, uh, they are abundant in the in this sector. And y- you talk, though, about, in Chapter 1 of your book, about the commodity cycles. They last a long time. Why so? You, you know, um, um Resources generally tend to be uh, right at the beginning of the stages of production, and so they tend to be uh, in a. They tend to be the last um, sector that receives and acts on price signals from the market. What do I mean by that? You know, if if I'm standing on a street corner selling daily newspapers, and I notice that. Whereas I used to sell a thousand a day, I'm now only selling five hundred, and then four fifty, and then four hundred. Well, I just tell the guy not to send me so many newspapers the next day. Mm-hmm. And if twenty or thirty people selling newspapers um, send the same message back to the wholesaler, he decides to not order so many so many newspapers from from the manufacturer, from the printer, who, if he gets it from a lot of his wholesalers. He decides to cut back on, on the production and so on, all the way up the chain. And it's when you're at the earliest stage of the chain, namely the guy that's actually cutting, cutting down the logs uh, and making mm-hmm. a newsprint, you mm-hmm. receive those price signals from the market last of all, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I right. think we can all see that in a simple example. Now, sure. the other reason the commodity uh, cycles tend to be long, and it goes along with that, is... Um, because typically, let's say, let's take a copper mine. A copper mine, if, if, if I'm sitting on the board of, of a, a major copper mining company and the price of copper starts to go up and one of the board members says, hey, you know, why don't we, um, why don't we uh, put that mine we've got down in Mexico into production? Well, I'm going to say, or someone's going to say, hang on a minute, do we really want to spend 2.8 billion dollars in capital when we don't even know if the prices are going to stay up. Mm-hmm. So you tend to wait for prices, you tend, for the pri- you, you tend to wait for prices to stay up and for this price rise to be confirmed before at that early stage you're willing to, put to spend the huge capital to put the mine into production. And then, of course, in, in the long cycle, it's even different. You know, you, you look at the bottom of the market in 2001, 2002, 
as prices start to go up, people slowly start to spend more money exploring. But from the time you decide to, from the time the the, the mark the, the company decides to increase its exploration budget until the time that they've discovered something, got the permits, built the mine, and actually are producing, that can be 10 years or even more. And so it's a long, long lead time, and the same works in reverse, of course. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a long lead time to making a decision to increase production and or, or decrease production until the effect is actually, you know, until the effect is actually... Um, um, uh, made to actually increase the production. Sure. So the, these these cycles tend to be very long. Well, I think you just explained uh, another question I was about to ask you. Why do the booms go on for so long? And I, I one of the reasons would be because of this uh, this lead time it takes to react to price changes and to be confident that you can undertake these huge expenditures for capital uh, development. We know how long it takes to build a mine from exploration to production. Uh, if you're fortunate enough to find a viable, economically viable deposit, it takes, you know, to get permits and everything, uh, capital, the mill, the, the mine and the mill built, uh, and and gold or copper, whatever you're producing out the door, it can be, as you say, 10 years or so. So I guess if the copper prices or whatever are going up a lot, it, that long lead time to adjust supply to meet that higher demand, that higher price level is part of the reason then that the boom goes so long. Well, absolutely. And let me just sort of clarify something, if I may. Ten years would be at the low end. Ten years sure. for a sort of heap leach gold mine would, would not be unreasonable. But for yeah. a major copper mine, we're, we're easily talking, you know, as long as, say, 20 years or something. Yeah. I mean, think of some of the last big gold mine, uh, copper mines that came into, mm-hmm. uh, came into um, uh, existence. Uh, Colahousie, for example, in Chile, you know, the big Estrada Anglo mine is currently on strike. You know, discovered in 1979, start up in 1999. That's 20 years, 20 years after discovery yeah. before the thing's producing. And that, that's not untypical at all. Okay, so we want to know then if we're investing in copper mines and gold mines and, and raw materials, uh, how long is this boom going to last now? We have growing demand in Chapter 2. You talk about demand for raw materials. Uh, in general, uh, as you just said, these cycles can go a long time, but it seems to me, it strikes me as if this cycle might even be more unusual than some of the others, given the massive change uh, and the growth in some of the most highly populous regions of the world. Of course, we think China, maybe India. Uh, what about it? Do you, do you think that there's something even more profound, perhaps, about this bull market in commodities than some of them in the recent past? No, absolutely. And you put your, you put your um, finger right on the nail there. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's something that I beca- – that's why I wrote the book, to be honest, but it's also something that in doing research for the book and doing thinking about the issues, I became more and more convinced of. Let, let's just stand back. We've talked about why commodity cycles are long, number one. And just to give you an example, uh, the, the shortest the shortest copper cycle in the last 250 years is 17 years. That's mm. the shortest. And mm. so even if this is to be the shortest cycle or to equal the shortest cycle, we're only halfway through. Mm-hmm. Um, now then, when if you look back on, on, over the last two and a half centuries, when do you see the longest sustained rises in commodity prices? That's a rhetorical question because I'm going to answer. Yes, it. you you see that where in it, where there is a major new source of of demand, you can see prices go up when there's a sudden increase in demand or when there's a uh, shortage in supply for some reason. Obviously, that can affect 
prices in the, sh- in the sh- relatively short term. But in terms of long-term sustained rises is when you have a new source of demand. You look back at, at the last two and a half centuries, and so far the two largest, uh, the two largest and longest commodity cycles, when all commodity prices moved up on a sustained basis for long periods of time from 1815 to 1840, which was during the period of British industrialization, from 1870 to 1914, which was when both the United States and Germany were industrializing, and now the current boom is nowhere near as long as those two yet, but it mm-hmm. is set, in my view, to be as long and much longer. Why is it going to be longer? Because the industrialization of China is much more significant in a historical terms than the industrialization of Germany, Britain, or, dare I say, even America. Because no. China right now represents over 20% of the world's population. As those 20% of the world's population um, move into the middle class, move into the 21st century, as they like to say, uh, and industrialize that society, then the demand, the increase in demand for commodities, commodities that are necessary, or resources, I should say, that are necessary to an industrialized society, is, is, going to, is, is truly going to be phenomenal, in, in my view. And then, of course, behind that, you've got India, and behind India, you've got um, Brazil. So this, this, uh, this, this commodity boom could last a long time. Well, you certainly uh, do have, uh, you mentioned 20% of the world's population in China. India isn't very far behind. If you lump India and Brazil together, how much more of the world's population? What are we talking about? I, I can't give you an answer to that. Yeah, I'm, going to, I'm going to guess. Uh, I'm going to guess another twenty percent, but I don't know. Yeah, it could be close to that. I was thinking that myself. Well, in terms of supply, now China has become the world's largest gold-producing nation, have they not? That's my understanding, anyway. I, no, absolutely. And China is the largest producer of a lot of resources. But the key here is that they have gone in 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 resource after resource after resource. They've gone from a a, 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 an exporter to a net importer. So even though they're the number one producer of a lot of commodities, they are no longer producing sufficient for their own requirements, and, and that's the key. And we've seen that over and over again, you know, year by year, how they start export, uh, importing commodities. And China, China recognizes, I think, perhaps even more than we do because they're going through this industrialization they recognize the impending shortages that are coming in a whole range of resources. And that's why China in particular has been going around the world locking in supplies. China's been... Sorry? I'm sorry, go ahead. They've been locking in supplies. And for China, that's in the middle of this industrialization process, the reliability of supplies is so much more important than the price they pay. Um, and so China has been, some would argue, overpaying for some of their long-term contracts. Uh, you know, they just did uh, two contracts, two long-term contracts, 20-year contracts on uranium, mm-hmm. um, paying 50% more than the current or well over the current market price. Um, but that's a smart move, in my view, uh, so, long as those, so long as those supplies um, keep coming. They don't really care what they pay. 
you know, it could also be, Adrian, that they're thinking in terms of the currency they're holding. They hold something, I think, $2.7 trillion of foreign reserves, a good portion of which are U.S. dollars. And they may be thinking, what is the dollar really worth? You know, maybe we'll just get rid of some of these things and buy something that's tangible that we'll, we're going to need in the long term. You suppose that may be part of their thinking as well, why they're willing to pay up? That's, that's a really interesting point, and, you know, that came up just the other day at the San Francisco Gold Show, or mm-hmm. Hard Assets Show. You know, what, five years ago, China set up its own sovereign wealth fund, and at the time, they put, uh, they put half of the foreign exchange reserves, which were almost exclusively U.S. dollars, they put half of the foreign exchange reserves into the sovereign wealth fund. At the time, it was about 450, uh, uh, gosh, I get confused, with billions and millions, billion billion dollars mm-hmm. and at that time i at that time i suspect that one of the key objectives was simply to diversify out of a dollar without causing too much political rumpus without just dumping your dollars what happened increasingly over the years was that fund that those investments of the reserve bank instead of being made in european banks in american banks and uh, real estate and so on, increasingly they have been put into commodities. So I, to answer your question, I think what's happened is the initial, the initial objective and concern over the dollar has become overwhelmingly a concern for supply of, of resources into the future. Let's just look, just what, a, clean, a clear example of this is... is, is uh, uranium. You know, as we know, China has a massive um, uh, program for building nuclear power plants. At the moment, it has about 13 in production. It has nearly twice that many under construction. But then it has as many as 160 that have been proposed. Mm-hmm. Right? But, right. But, but 13 are under in operation. 23 are, are actually in construction. Now, with a, ura- with a nuclear power plant, virtu- your, your, with a nuclear power plant, your overwhelming costs for the life of that operation are your capital costs. Absolutely. The capital cost is what's critical. Now then, isn't, once you're in operation, your capital costs are your largest, you know, amortizing and pay, paying, paying interest and paying down your, your capital costs are your biggest uh, cost component. But even if you exclude that, the cost of uranium is still a relatively small part in the equation. The point I'm making is that once you have a nuclear power plant built, and of course you can't switch a nuclear power plant to a gas-fired plant, um, I was going to say very easily, but I might be misunderstood. You can't switch it. It's a nuclear power plant, Mm -hmm. and it requires at the moment uranium. It doesn't matter if uranium's 50 cents a pound, $2 a pound. That's still a relatively small part of the overall cost equation. And so China's looking ahead 5, 6, 5, 10, even 15 years and saying we need uranium. Um, and it almost doesn't matter what price we pay. Yeah, I, I think that's that's absolutely right, Adrian. I think one of the reasons why you have to be so bullish on uranium longer term. Um, so um, I'm just wondering, uh, are you hearing me, Adrian? Yes, yes. 
Oh, okay, okay. Uh, they're um, you have to be bullish. I, I also just uh, lost my train of thought there, but basically, what we're talking about uh, is, is again the dollar. Uh, to make a point that you were that we were talking about a minute ago, you know, the Chinese have their own rating agencies, and they recently downgraded uh, the U.S. dollar. So that may also say something. Listen, you have so much more to talk about. We don't only have maybe seven, eight minutes left to okay. go. If that, uh, let me ask you. Uh, getting back to gold. In Chapter 6 of your book, you said uh, there are reasons, uh, you said, uh, reasons for gold to go up. So let me ask you, what are those reasons? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. With, with any commodity, but particularly with gold, you've got, or, or specifically with gold, you've got the macroeconomic reasons and you've got the supply-demand reasons. And right now with gold, everything is sort of lined up in the same direction. You know, if you look at the global economic uh, scenario, you've got um, low interest rates, interest rates that are lagging inflation. Even though inflation is low, interest rates are still lower. That's positive. You've got excess money and money being created. You've got a declining dollar. All of those things, all of those things are positive. That's, a, that's an ideal scenario for gold. And you've also got, on balance, global economic growth, not here in the U.S. or Europe, but on balance in the world, You've got economic growth and you've got an emerging middle class in China and India and, and Brazil and other countries. So that's demand for gold. Um, so so the, the, the macroeconomic environment is extremely favorable. But on the other hand, if you look at the supply and demand, I mean, you and I both know that it's only in, in the 10 years of this bull market, in the 10 years of this bull market, last year was the first year the gold production, primary gold production actually went up. That tells you that tells you a lot. That tells you well, everything you need to know about the difficulties, both technical um, as well as political and environmental, the difficulties of finding and producing more gold. When you think that over the last ten years the price of gold has more than quintupled, when you think that the global budget for exploration, the exploration budget uh, worldwide on looking for gold has more than quintupled, and yet it's only this year for the first time that we've been able to increase production. And production today is less than production was 10 years ago. So um, it's difficult to find these deposits, uh, very yeah. difficult. It's increasingly... Um, and, sorry. Uh, you know, I was just going to say it's increasingly difficult, Adrian, and we're looking at lower and lower grades now being economic. It, you need a higher gold price to fetch this uh, gold from the ground, to win it from the gold, the gold from the ground. I'd also like to make the point, as you were saying, we had an increase in the uh, in the supply of gold, the main production of gold from the primary production. But at the same time, I would dare say that that increase is almost negligible in terms of the total supply of gold in that gold doesn't get consumed. It remains above ground for the most part, right? Well, of, of course. And so that's, that's a, yeah, of course, that's only part of the equation. And so the really big question, the huge question is what the huge question is, are the large holders of gold likely to offload? Mm -hmm. Now, maybe the IMF will offload everything. Um, it's conceivable that the U.S. would start to offload its gold, assuming the gold is still here. Mm -hmm. um, that's conceivable. Um, but are countries like um, Russia and China and Singapore, are they going to sell their gold? I don't think so. I think on balance you're going to find, and of course we saw this last year and this year to date, uh, central banks have now turned net 
buyers of gold. And let's not forget that up until the last 20 years, which in historical terms is a very short period of time, up until the last 20 years, central banks were always net buyers of gold. Mm. Central banks were the number one demand source for gold. And so the last 20 years was the aberration to, argue, to, to address uh, uh, the point that some of the bears are making, mm-hmm. but we need jewelry demand. Yeah. Um, the last 20 years were the aberration where jewelry demand dominated the world of gold. Yeah, so I guess the uh, Lord Keynes uh, has his way or has had his way in the indoctrination process, perhaps, because people clearly uh, with PhDs behind their names uh, in economics don't really understand gold, in my view. Uh, what about you, silver? May I just say something on that, Jay? Because yeah, you absolutely. probably saw this quote. But about nine months ago, Ben Bernanke, who is you know, supposed to be one of these really smart academics who, who, who really understands economics so much, but he actually said, and I'm quoting here, I don't understand why gold can go up when inflation is so low. <laughs> now, that tells me he simply doesn't understand gold. He doesn't understand why people are buying gold. Well, he wasn't taught, I guess. It wasn't in the answers he had to write <laughs> in, his little, in his little blue book to get his A's and to get his, uh, his prestigious degree. Uh, what about silver, Adrian? Um, more bullish on silver than gold? What are your thoughts there? You know, I, 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 don't, I don't want to offend a lot of your listeners. I, I won't say I'm agnostic on, I'm agnostic on that question. Mm-hmm. On that question. I'm not agnostic on silver, but on that particular question. Clearly, silver can have Clearly, we know from empirical evidence, silver can have much sharper rallies than can gold. They tend to be, you know, shorter perhaps, but much, much sharper in terms of percentage. And we've seen that over, you know, this year, of course. I I would have to say, however, that gold is probably much more defensive than silver. Um, So I I like silver, um, but from this point, as we speak today... Is silver going to outperform gold in the next six months? I I really don't know. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. We've got uh, just a couple of minutes left. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, well, there's so many more things I'd like to ask you. Um, What about deflation? Do you think that's, is is there there a real, uh, is there reason to fear deflation? And if so, uh, where would you rather be, gold or silver? Well, no, good question, a good one to end on, I, if, if I can make this short. Um, yes, I, I, I think deflation is a real possibility, frankly, uh, mm-hmm. because we have excess capacity, particularly in the West. We have excess capacity, uh, excess goods and services. Um, so I, I, I think that's a real, a, a real possibility. But, you know, gold, let's not forget the gold historically, throughout 700 years and more of history, gold has performed better during deflationary periods and during inflationary periods. And we don't have time to go into this now. It's one of my pet sort of um, um, themes, if you like. But that excellent book written by Roy Jastrom called The Golden Constant, where he had daily price levels and daily, uh, annual, I mean, annual price levels and annual uh, levels of gold going all the way back to 1640 with approximations back to 1250. And you see that in deflations, gold outperforms. Gold is not an inflation hedge. It's a crisis hedge. It's a hedge against instability. It's a hedge against fiat money. 
it's it's a it's a stability um, hedge, if you like. Adrian, I'd love to have you on to discuss that very issue more sometime in the future because it's also something that I talk about a lot and something that I believe in very much. I would also say uh, that I believe history suggests that deflationary environments are the best for the gold mining sector. And one of the issues that I've brought out here since the Lehman Brothers decline has been the increase in the real price of gold since the Lehman Brothers, uh, maybe starting with the Bear Stearns decline uh, in, in 2008, we saw a price. An ounce of gold would buy 15% of the Rogers Raw Material Fund before Lehman Brothers. It shot up to 44% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. It's around 40% or 39 or 40% right now. So, And again, this goes to your point. The deflationary environment is extremely good for gold. And I would say to my listeners, not necessarily the nominal price of gold, but the real price Absolutely. of gold, because that is really increasing the margins. And we're seeing the major mining companies increase their margins, and I believe that we're going to see capital come down the food chain to the juniors. So let me ask you this question before I let you go. What do you think, uh, wh where are people going to make the most money, in the major mining companies or in the juniors? Oh, I think in the juniors, without doubt. But, of course, there's so many of them, and a lot of them are risky as well as being volatile. And there's mm -hmm. a difference between risk and volatility, as, as, as you know. Another one of my pet themes. But... Um, no, I think definitely in the juniors, because the seniors have the major issue of reserve replacement. Yeah. Um, and, and in order to replace their reserves, they're buying the juniors. But, of course, you have to have a real junior, a junior which actually has the goods. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, indeed. And, you know, but we're seeing, uh, I think it was Gold Corp that went out and paid over $900 an ounce. So that goes to your point about the cost uh, for, the, for the majors to come in and, and replenish their reserves. They just can't do it. The juniors, from what I've seen, and I've been following this market a long time, probably almost as long probably longer than you because I think I'm older yeah. than you. Yeah, that, that, yeah, thank you. But uh, in fact, that uh, you know, the juniors are, are the guys that are able to find the gold. And, and so that sort of leads me into uh, our, next, our next segment. We're going to actually be talking to Klondex Mines. Blaine Wilson, he's the president and chief operating officer of Klondex Mines. But uh, Adrian, it's been a pleasure. Let, let uh, me ask you, uh, for the sake of our listeners, how people can follow your work and where they can pick up your book. Well, thank you. Thank you for the plug. Um, yeah, the book uh, is available from bookstores. I don't think many bookstores have it, but you can get it from the bookstore, or it's available on Amazon.com quite easily. Sure. Um, and then if people want more information, uh, they should probably write to me at assetmanagement at adrianday.com. Asset management at adrianday.com. I had so many more questions I, was, I wanted to ask you. We're going to have to have you back if you're willing to come on with us again. Oh, love to, Jay. So you. many things to talk about. Uh, I wanted to ask you about agriculture, many other commodities you talk about in your book. Perhaps it's better that we don't talk too much about it so people feel they have a need to go out and buy your book. <laughs> uh, but in any event, it would be good to have you back again. You have so many interesting things to say. Thank you very much, Adrian, for being with us. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the commercial break break with Blaine Wilson. He's the president and COO of Clondex Mines. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. 
The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Peck, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by as regular listeners to this show know i am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks one of my favorite gold mining companies is metanor resources traded toronto and the pink sheets this is a new gold producer it is using cash flows from its berry mine in quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world famous quebec bachelor lake mine back into production this stock has been recommended by my newsletter because i do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, we just heard from Adrian Day. We uh, concluded our discussion with Adrian. He talked about the need uh, for the major mining companies to find deposits, how they're not able to do it very efficiently, and how uh, they are starting to look down the food chain to the juniors. The junior mining companies have a much better track record in finding gold. That's what their mission in life is to do, is to explore and develop gold mining projects. And so I'm very pleased to have a company uh, that is with us today uh, in the person of Blaine Wilson, the president and COO of Klondex Mines, uh, because I believe this is a company that could very well be a very significant gold producer, and we may not have to wait that long. Uh, Welcome, Blaine, uh, again, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you for having us. We're we're quite pleased to to be back again. And uh, as you're, you know, the, and I I couldn't agree with Adrian more that uh, the juniors are, are the place to look and and provide uh, just tremendous opportunities. Well, let's talk about opportunities for people who own your shares. Now, you're traded on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol KDX. I think uh, on the U.S., the uh, individuals down here can buy it under the symbol KLNDF. Thirty-six and a half on the TSX big board, not the venture. Oh, you are okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Apologies uh, on the big board, even. Yeah, that's good. that's that's good news. Uh, what's your? I did didn't check your price, but you thirty six and a half million shares. Are you over two dollars or something? What is right now? Our last trade was around two dollars and forty five cents, and uh, so yeah, it's uh, doing quite well right now. Two dollars and forty five cents, but only thirty six and a half million shares outstanding. So in in terms of a market cap, it's 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 not that. A big a market cap, considering the fact that you have some 2.1 million ounce resource. I guess a uh, 500,000 of that is inferred, and the other 1.6 is measured and indicated. But uh, let's let's talk a little bit about your your resource. Now, what I think is is really interesting uh, and promising is the potential to have some cash flow from production. You uh, are expecting to do a bulk sample sometime. When do you expect to do that? We expect to see the first bulk sample of, of 36,500 tons coming out of the mine about this time next year. And uh, we're quite pleased with that. We're targeting a, a very high-grade area of a little over one ounce per ton for that. And now that we'd expect to recover 32,000 ounces. Uh, so that's a nice uh, amount of cash flow for us. And the way our permit is, then the start of the following year in 2012, Q1, we'll start extracting that second bulk sample of additional 32,000 ounces recovered as well. Oh, and this would be in the year 2012? That's correct. So you're looking to produce 32,000 ounces from your bulk sample in 2011. Would that be towards the end of the year? How, what's the timing on this? Yeah, it would be towards uh, in Q4 of next year. About this time next year, we'll start seeing those tons come out of the mine. Okay. And, uh, I mean, if you're looking at 1300 I mean, we're pushing $1,400 gold today. That's a pretty nice piece of change that could come out of there for you. 
You know, it, it absolutely is. And, and as a company, as we looked forward and we've, we've projected and what we're going to do, we've looked at these bulk samples as a way to be self-funding so we don't need to go back to the market uh, that we can provide that return to our shareholders. And, and so uh, it's working out quite well for us. Uh, with respect to uh, minimizing shareholder dilution, this is a, a subject that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, my good friend Chen Lin, who is one of the most successful investors I know of, who is also a partner of mine, Chen always harps at this. And one of the things we look at, do, does the company have a lot of management that owns shares? Do you have a lot of, uh, like yourself and other management members, what, what portion of, the, of that $36.5 million is held by insiders? About 20%. Uh, our That's, CEO and chairman of the board, uh, William Soloway, holds about 14% of that himself. Wow. So there's reason then. Uh, you, your, your interests then are aligned with those of the shareholders, which I think is a very important consideration for people. Absolutely. You know, uh, for shareholders make money, we do. And that's uh, been our goal. As you, as you can see, we, we have a very uh, small share base compared to a lot of the other juniors like us. Uh, but we've, we've done that uh, on purpose. We want to provide the maximum return we can to our, 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 our present and future shareholders. Uh, and we look at ways also when we do our financing raises to, to keep that dilution to a minimum as well. Well, you know, when you go out to raise money at $2.45 or over $2, it's a lot different than trying to raise it at $0.20, cents, which a lot of the juniors are, are faced to have to do. Now, you just recently raised $9 million, I believe, uh, or you have $9 million in the till right now. How far will that take you? Will that allow you to do your first bulk sample? What that will do is we'll, we'll start our decline uh, sometime uh, Q1 of, of 2011. That will drive the 4,600 feet of decline. That will put the surface structures in place. That will put the line ponds and the pad in place as well. And uh, we're also in the process of raising an additional $10 million right now. That uh, we hope to have something out on that uh, soon. Uh, that will carry us into the production of that first bulk sample uh, through the processing of that bulk sample and the return of those ounces and the sale of those ounces. In terms of processing, we're looking at, what, about 90% recoveries, or what, uh, what our, are your recoveries? Our initial metallurgical work has shown recoveries in, uh, in the low 90s to the mid-90s mm -hmm. uh, using gravity separation and with combi combined with a cyanide finish. So we can take the, about 80 85% of the gold out with gravity separation and an additional 5 to 8% with a cyanide finish. Okay, and your production that you're projecting here, where where you, you have your own mill in place, or you're going to have to have that custom milled somewhere? Uh, initially, we'll be uh, looking to have that custom milled. Uh, we're actually talking to 11 different milling facilities right now. Um, Ten of those are in Nevada. One is outside of Nevada uh, to provide that service, and, and that's a great opportunity for a short term. But long term, however, we're looking to have our own milling facility. Uh, Toll milling, I said early, is is a great opportunity for us, uh, but can be expensive. And over the long term, we would. Uh, like your own mills, so we can return those values back to our own shareholders. Uh, okay, so you uh, so you have a 2.1 million resource now. Can you give our listeners some sense of exploration potential beyond that? Oh, absolutely. The property itself, uh, the Fire Creek property, is our flagship property. It's a little over a little over 11,000 acres, or roughly 17 square miles. Uh, today, we've explored about 17% of that. Uh, we've drilled over uh, 290,000 feet. Uh, with Klondex, we've had some joint venture partners in the past, so historically there's over 400,000 feet of drilling. And again, that's only 17%. Uh, right now, uh, in 2009, we had uh, instigated a program to aid us in our exploration of this property, and we did a, uh, an IP study, induced polarization, and we identified 15 new targets. And so our drill program this year was 40,000 feet. 
uh, roughly about 29 holes, a combination of RC and core, and those all were targeted for step out of our current resources it is now. And uh, next year and the year after, all of our surface exploration will be to expand the size of this resource from the surface. Um, good. Uh, so, uh, so you're um, with that kind of exploration potential. Uh, it seems to me uh, like you have a very, very bright future. I, I, I it's it's very difficult to know. Um, this is, uh, I guess, one of the things I didn't ask you about. I believe this is an underground mining project primarily. Is that right? This is. This will be an underground mining. Yes. And uh, but sort of, what kind of widths do you have? Are, are they? You know, because and the mining dilution. How much mining dilution do you expect uh, from this? Are there the big wide widths? Which I guess what we haven't talked about too much is the cost of mining yet. We talked about what you can get into bulk samples, but going forward, what do you think your your overall cost of production might be? In our our resource waste stands now is primarily in two zones: the main zone and the far north zone. And the main zone is our target right now. It's a little over a million tons, averaging eight tenths of an ounce per ton is where the resource stands right now. It has an average width of about uh, uh, four meters, so actually quite wide. Uh, so, I mean, dilution obviously is a concern when you're an uh, epithermal-grade structure as we are. Uh, so we, we uh, factor that in, but because of our widths, we'll be able to use uh, just normal mecha uh, mechanized mining methods. Our costs are going to come in using a tow mill facility at around 525 to 550 depending on what the fuel prices are. Uh, that's a, a, a strong variable that we're looking at right now. Uh, once we have our own uh, milling facility, we'd expect those costs uh, to reduce down to about uh, 375 to 410 And uh, so, no, we're quite excited about the prospects of our, of our Fire Creek property. That is that is really interesting because we're looking at with gold at thirteen hundred fifty dollars, uh, an eight hundred dollar or so margin per ounce produced, and so the listeners can sort of look at thirty two thousand ounces and multiply times eight hundred to get a sense of what your operating net cash flow would be. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Yes. Um, okay, so we then are looking at uh, even lower cost. What uh, have you done any work in terms of the uh, size of the mill you might build? What the capital cost might be for that? We have we have a couple of opportunities. Uh, you know, first we can we can purchase a mill that's uh, already in the area, and there's a couple of them that we're looking at right now. And those costs will range between uh, ten and probably thirty million to do that. Or we can uh, build a mill on our property. Uh, we've priced one out to do about a, a thousand to twelve hundred ton per day facility, and that would cost between thirty-five and forty million uh, as a capital expenditure. Uh, but it would also require three to five years to permit and to construct. So we're looking at those options uh, very closely right now as a company, and uh, we're finding some uh, attractive opportunities. Those aren't uh, terribly high uh, capital cost numbers, I would gather to say. Uh, but, you know, what you have going for you here is a really high grade. Let me ask you, you're looking at over an ounce per ton here on your initial bulk sampling. With the 1.2 million or 2.1 million ounces, I should say, overall, what is your, your grade overall in that, uh, in, that, in that resource? Right at about 10 grams. Uh, for, the, 10 grams. The, for the indicated, it's right at 10 grams, and the inferred is about 8.5 grams. Okay, and then when we go back to this cost structure of 525 to 550, are you talking about a higher grade there in that in that calculation, or are you talking? No, we're about using the, the average grade over the life of the main. Oh, zone. fantastic! So it's fair to say that your average cost on the bulk sampling, since you're looking at over an over an ounce per ton, uh, might be lower than those numbers. We would expect that to be yes. Aha. Uh -huh. Very, very interesting, um, and so many targets to shoot at. Uh, you've got lots of ex. What do you have in your exploration budget going forward? 
Well, this year, in 2010, we, we are spending about uh, $1.8 million U.S., uh, looking at next year uh, to increase that to a little over $2 million, but also spend an additional $2 million uh, doing underground infill drilling and exploration drilling from the ground as well. So about four, four and a half million for next year. Four and a half, four and four and a half million, which will give you a lot of, uh, and, and, and it's, we're, we're talking about a deposit that's fairly near surface, are we? It is, yes. We show mineralization at the surface. Historically, there was a little open pit there, uh, but we show these, these vein structures uh, about 100, 200 feet below the surface and extending down to 1,300 feet. And right now, our resource is open to the north, the south, the west, and the depth. And uh, we're starting to see some interesting drill holes to the east. So um, we have a lot of good things uh, to look forward to. And, and we certainly expect as a company that this resource will, will significantly grow. Blaine, I think uh, you guys have been working real hard. You've not been talking a whole lot about your story. You've come on my show to talk about it. It's something that I definitely have to spend some time looking at and, uh, and, and telling my subscribers about. I, I really do believe you've got a very, a very unique story here. The shares outstanding being so low, I think, is, is a very, very positive thing. The high grades are very positive. The wide mining widths look very positive. Uh, just in general, I think this, this looks like a very good story, and uh, I want to congratulate you on your hard work. So uh, that's all the time we have now, Blaine. So I look forward, though, to, to talking to you sometime in the near future, again, uh, to bring this, uh, to update our listeners on this story. And also, if I can find some time, I want to try to get, my, uh, get this story in front of my subscribers, because I think it's, it looks like a doozy. It's a, it's a wonderful story, and, and as you've mentioned, we're just getting the story out now. We, we felt we wanted to wait till we had uh, almost all of our permits in hand so that we had a great story to tell and that we were going to be moving forward and we're to that point. And uh, so we're, we're quite excited. We think that we present just a very unique opportunity to investors at this time. So we might look for some cash flow or some cash flow about this time next year from the first bulk sampling. That's your projection, I guess. That's our projection, correct. Okay, excellent. Well, that's all the time we have now, Blaine. Uh, folks, uh, I'm going to wrap up today's show. Roger is not here with me, so I just want to tell you, I want to thank you again for listening to this, uh, to this show and making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Again, I want to let you know that you can take advantage of some special trial offers, uh, one-time-only trial offers for Chen Lin, Roger Wiegand, and my own newsletter. Uh, you can go to miningstocks.com to do that, or you can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Uh, I should tell you that next week we have a really, really interesting guest coming on. Uh, he's going to be John Loftus. He's going to talk about uh, the American Nazi secret is the name of his book, a fascinating read about who some of the people were behind the funding of Adolf Hitler, a very shocking, interesting story coming uh, next week, so you won't want to miss that. I just want to thank again uh, my producer, uh, Tacey Trump, uh, my executive, senior executive producer, excuse me, Tacey, uh, for her great work at Ruben Columbia, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer, Thanks to all of you folks for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Thanks to our sponsors for making this show financially viable. Till next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time is in-